Well, today we begin a new series through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, Chase has been doing a fantastic job in that series of the I Am statements in the Gospel according to John. He wrapped that up last week, and it's my privilege to get us started this week in a new series in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church. And I thought I'd begin to settle us into this letter by way of two introductory words. One is relevance, and the other is distance. And by the way, uh, since this is week one of this series, we'll take some extra time for some introduction and some of the backstory that led to Paul writing this letter to the Thessalonian church. And so it'll be a ways in before we get to our passage of 1 Thessalonians 1. So like I said, let's consider some introductory words here. One would be relevance. 1 Thessalonians is a relevant book. Of course, all the Bible is, but this is especially. It has the themes of suffering and sex, work and death, love for others, of course, spiritual growth, how we think of ourselves as Christians in relation to the world. It has the themes of waiting and being patient, the anticipation of Christ's return, which is always relevant, but continues to be more relevant the closer we get to it. And a second introductory word is distance. There is some distance between us and the world of 1 Thessalonians. It was written a long time ago to different people than us at a different time, another place. And yes, all the Bible is indeed relevant to every generation, every location but on that path towards a proper interpretation and application of Scripture. At times, we need to stop and notice things like cultural differences. Take, for example, the ease and the many different sources for communication that we have in our world today compared to what anyone would have had in the Roman first century world. Many of you know that we have two daughters away at college uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. And so if you were to ask Sarah or me uh, how Autumn and Caitlin are doing this semester, uh, we can tell you as much as you want to hear, as much as you have the patience to, to listen to. Uh, we, could, we could tell you that we FaceTime with them uh, last evening for, for you know, over an hour. We, we could mention Instagram photos that we've enjoyed in the last week. We could talk about texts that we've shared with various updates or stupid jokes all, all through the week. Um, I, I knew generally what my daughters at college were doing this weekend. Um, I knew that Autumn was helping out at a youth retreat for her church, and I knew that Caitlin got invited to go to Nashville but decided not to go because she had too much studying to do. And I could even get more intrusive. I could, uh, I could find them on Find My Friends on my phone and find what coffee shop they're at right now. My point is the ease of communication, the almost limitless options available to us to find out where people are and how they are is astounding today. And we barely can remember uh, something different. But it wasn't always this way. 
kids, there was a day before cell phones and before Facebook and before Instagram. There was a day when the, the phone was on the wall and you had a giant cord that was always tangled. Uh, there was a day, I'm told, it was before my time, when there wasn't even a wall on the phone. There was a time when the U.S. Postal Service was just beginning. There was a day when the Pony Express was a new thing. And there was a day even before the Pony Express, and I don't know exactly how people communicated when they were far away. So imagine with me this made-up, otherworldly, really impossible scenario. Imagine that Sarah and I are dropping our two daughters off at college, out of state, somehow, in days, without the communication sources that we enjoy today. Imagine that something bad happens while we're there. Imagine that Sarah and I are forced out of town and Autumn and Caitlin remain there in Louisville, Kentucky. Imagine that we're back in Albuquerque without any means of communication, without any knowledge of how they are. Imagine we, we would pray. We'd wait. We'd ask around, have you heard? What's going on? We'd look for information. We would just keep waiting. Well, if we don't appreciate that, if we don't appreciate that First Thessalonians was written in those kind of days, without the ease of communication that we enjoy today, then we're going to miss something of the ethos behind the letter, something of the feeling and heart and emotion behind this letter. Yet before we get to that letter, we have to understand something of the backstory that's found in Acts 17. So turn there first in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 17. And here we consider our, our first of four headings, their precarious beginning. That's what we find in Acts 17 and what we can piece together from another part of the Thessalonian letter, a precarious beginning. In Acts 17, Paul is in the middle of his second missionary journey, and we find this in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Well, I could read on or else I can summarize for you in the following verses. Good news, some believed. Bad news, opposition arose fiercely and quickly. There were rumors that Paul and Silas were troublemakers, rabble-rousers, and really rabble-rousers themselves. They, they formed a riot around them. They, they made these false accusations of Paul and Silas being treasonous. Before long, they were arrested. And, and there's a trial of sorts, and it ends decently. They're released but only with the promise that they would leave town right then and not come back. And so we read in verse 10, 
the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Now, we don't know how long Paul was in Thessalonica. There's mention back in verse 2 of Acts 17 that he was doing ministry over three different Sabbaths. But that could just be evangelistic ministry at the beginning and not necessarily how long he stayed. But regardless of how long he was there, it wasn't terribly long comparatively. And regardless of how long he was there, his departure from there was forced, it was immediate, and it was permanent. As far as we know, Paul never returned to Thessalonica. But we know from Acts that some people got saved, that things got hot, that Paul and his companions were forced out. They moved on city to city, Berea, then Athens, then Corinth. And over the next several months, they waited. They prayed. They wished for some news about those new Christians in Thessalonica. Will they give up? Can they make it without the typical apostolic incubator that Paul usually provides for new Christians and new churches? Well, turn to 1 Thessalonians then. And yet, not chapter 1 just yet, look in chapter 2. It's in chapter 2 and 3 where Paul here fills in some of the gaps of this backstory. He tells us something that Acts doesn't record. So look at 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17. Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, that's what we read in Acts, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer bear it, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us, back to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. We'll stop there. So in addition to what we have in Acts, we have here in 1 Thessalonians 2 and 3, a clearer picture. After months of separation and concern and prayer for these people, when Paul could take it no longer, he sent Timothy back on a multi-day journey to Thessalonica, no doubt a covert mission because he shouldn't have been there. And he got news of how the Thessalonians were doing and it was good news, mostly good news. He comes back to the Apostle Paul in Corinth now with mostly good news. And Paul, with great relief and with much thanksgiving to God for this good report, he picks up pen and he writes this. So now, chapter 1, verse 1. 
Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We'll stop there for this week. That's enough for us to deal with. Those first five verses unpack Paul's thankful prayers for this church. They're thankful prayers for this church in light of their precarious beginning, in light of Timothy's encouraging report. And now, secondly, we see Paul's thankful specifically for their faith, love, and hope. Verses 2 and 3. Faith, love, and hope. You might know it as faith, hope, and love. That's what we find in 1 Corinthians. But here, in earlier letter, Paul refers to faith, love, and hope. And those words will come up again later in this five-chapter letter. In fact, faith, love, and hope here at the beginning may function like almost a, a table of contents in, for what follows. In other words, there's a faith section, then there's a love section, and then there's a hope section. I leave you to go try to find those on your own later on. But, but then at the end, all three are used together again. Chapter 5, verse 8, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. This is a big deal. Faith, love, hope. But back in chapter 1, it has its own unique packaging. It's work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. I need to think about what each of those mean. Each of them has a root and a fruit, and we want to get them in the right order. So work of faith doesn't mean working hard at faith, though there's a sense in which that's true elsewhere in the Bible. Here it means work which flows out of faith. That's important because we're saved through faith alone, not our works, right? Paul can say in Romans 4, 5, to the one who doesn't work his way to God, work his way to, to get credit with God, to the one who gives up on that but simply believes to him, his faith is accredited as righteousness. Yes, Romans 4 and 5 make it so clear. We are saved through faith alone. But then we get to chapter 6, and Paul begins to unpack how those who were saved through faith alone are now transformed. They're being transformed. They are new creations. They're not what they used to be. And now that Free salvation received through faith alone is being worked out in practical, changing ways. It's what James 2 is all about. That faith without works is dead. It's not real. It's not saving faith. John Calvin famously said, 
We are saved by faith alone, but not the faith that is alone. So Paul was thankful for their faith, which led to salvation. Faith, which was at work. Faith is the root. Work is the fruit. And there's labor of love. Labor of love? Well, while it's true that some people, to love them, it's work. I'm one of them. In fact, we're all those kind. It is true that we need to work at loving people. That's not what this means here, though. It means a labor, a work, which flows out of love. Probably God's love to us, but then love back to him and love for others. In light of his love, we love others and we work hard at it. And then there's the steadfastness of hope that we have in our Lord Jesus. Hope in 1 Thessalonians always refers to the anticipation and the expectation of Jesus' return one day. It's not a hope-so kind of thing, like someone might hope to get a new job sometime this year. No, it's the encouragement and joy of the anticipation and the expectation of Jesus' return. And that kind of hope, Paul says, produces steadfastness or steadiness or stick to It produces endurance in the midst of suffering. Now, don't forget that though I'm teaching us what this triad of virtues really means, Paul in the letter here at this point isn't so much teaching as much as he is telling them what he's been praying for and praying about. So verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father... And then he unpacks that triad of virtues. He's been praying about that. He's been thanking God that these things are true for these people. And so before we move on to our next heading, we should pause here to ponder in general this idea of praying with thankfulness for God's work of grace in other people. Paul, for him, it's a big deal. He says he's been praying for them like this always, constantly, verse 2, which shouldn't be taken in a woodenly, literal way, like he does nothing else or prays for no one else. It just means he prays for them regularly. And every time he prays for them, he prays for them in this sort of way, thanking God for God's genuine work of grace in them with all of its outworkings in the Christian life. This raises the question for us, what we pray for and why. What we give thanks to God for and why. Think through your prayer requests. Think through your typical thanksgivings to God. I think most of us in America in the 21st century, most evangelicals, we tend to pray for and we tend to thank God for Physical things, protection, provision, you know, 
problems that we have in life that we want the Lord to just take away. And we really can bring anything before the Lord. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Yes, and amen. But if we look carefully at the prayers of the Bible, the priority is not usually on the physical, but on the spiritual. Take Paul's prayers, not just this one here, but elsewhere. Philippians 1, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1. Also, in 2 Thessalonians 1, we find a paragraph or so of the content of Paul's prayer for that church. And what consumes his prayer for those churches is a thankfulness to God for their salvation, thankfulness to God for their spiritual growth, and then some kind of rich prayer request that God would do more in them, show them more, reveal more, grow them more and more. I'd encourage you to check out those prayers for yourself if you've never done that. You can also find a a great book on those prayers by D.A. Carson. It's called Praying with Paul, a great study of how Paul prays and how we learn to pray like Paul. Paul celebrates with prayerful thanksgiving. He celebrates God's work in and through people. He loves to do it. And by the way, these Thessalonians are far from perfect. Paul will go on in the rest of the letter to address some shortcomings, some misunderstandings, some misdirections that need correction. And I tend to begin with those things. I tend to assume the things that we're all doing well and then work on quickly fixing those things that are a problem. Paul's instincts are not mine. Thank goodness. No, his thankfulness for these people, simply that they're genuinely saved, is top of the list, and it's in all of his prayers for the churches that we find in the New Testament letters. He never seems to tire of celebrating the gospel in someone's life. You might think, well, you do that when you first get saved or when someone first gets saved. Thank God. But you don't have to keep thanking them for it, do you? Yes, you do. Because you still need it. It's still true. It's still unbelievable. It's unthinkable. Paul seems to have never gotten over the fact that the Lord saved him. And he seems to never get over the fact that he saved someone else and someone else and someone else. So as a church, let's never tire to thank God for our own salvation. Let's not think that's a given. Let's not merely assume that we have thankfulness in our hearts, but we don't have to keep talking to God about it. No, Paul voices it. When we pray for others and when we thank God for their salvation, let's, if we can, follow up with them and let them know we did that. That's what Paul's doing here writing to the Thessalonians to say, I've been thanking God for your salvation and the outworkings of it in faith, love, and hope. In our elders' meetings, we systematically pray through the membership directory with about a letter per week. And it's so encouraging to me for our elders you know, to know this or that thing going on in someone's life. Not all of us know everyone the same but, but also to pray, perhaps first, to thank God that he saved them. That's not a given. They didn't deserve it. They couldn't earn it. And that's abundantly clear in what Paul says next. 
So thirdly, he's thankful for their divine election in verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Election is the biblical and theological term for what is simply God having chosen them. He chooses. He elects. Fifteen times in the New Testament, God's people are just called that, the elect or his elect. Now, sometimes Christians will mistakenly say something like, oh, that guy believes in election, or I don't believe in election, or they'll ask, so do you believe in election? And I say that's mistaken because election is in the Bible, by word and by concept. It shouldn't be a question of whether a Christian believes in election or not, but how they interpret it, what it means, how it works. There are basically two views. One view is that God chose those whom he saw in the future would one day choose him. The other view, which I think is correct, is to say, if it depends on us, We'd never choose him. If it's up to us to choose God, none of us ever would. We need God to initiate. We're in that much trouble. We're not just guilty. We're spiritually dumb. We're spiritually dead. We're not drowning in the ocean, and we need him to throw us a raft or a preserver. We're face down in the ocean having drowned in sin, we need him to come and put life into us. And so Jesus can say in John 15 to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And John can write in his first epistle, we love because he first loved us. God initiates. And you say, well, why did he initiate with me then? Why me? Why would he love me? Why would he choose me? And I don't know. I really don't know. I I do know this. Whether you're talking about you or me, it's not because we were lovely. It's not because we were worthy. It's not because he saw a spark of good in us that others didn't have. It's mysterious. We don't know. It's to his glory. He saves in such a way so that we can't take the credit. We find this in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says, consider your calling, brothers, being brought into the faith. Consider it. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's because of him you are in Christ Jesus. Or as he puts it in Ephesians 1, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, if verses like those make you uncomfortable, I really encourage you to to not want to jump by them when you read them in the Bible. To not whistle and pass along as quickly as you can, but instead to keep working, thinking, praying about these matters in Scripture. They're not in just a couple of places. They're, they're everywhere. And notice that Paul is clearly not uncomfortable with these things. He doesn't say, you know, the P word, predestination. He doesn't say, election, but don't tell anyone. No. Paul wasn't with the Thessalonian church very long at all relative to other churches he began. But apparently they knew about this. Charles Spurgeon said it's something like the family secret. That on the front of heaven the gate says, whosoever will may come. And on the other side we look back and see, chosen before the foundation of the world. I'd encourage you keep thinking about these things, keep looking in the Bible, come to be convinced that these things are true, come to be content with some mystery even while you conclude some things. You won't have all your questions answered about these matters. But come ultimately to be comforted by these truths. That's why Paul brought it up in verse 4, to comfort them, to encourage them, to strengthen them, to assure them. He didn't write it to confuse them. He didn't write it to stir up doctrinal controversy. So Charles Spurgeon said, There is no more humbling doctrine in Scripture than that of election, none more promoting of gratitude, and consequently, none more sanctifying. Believers should not be afraid of it, but adoringly rejoice in it. And I confess, I did not always have that position. I confess that there was a time in my life when I thought, wait, you said what is in the Bible? I remember trying to get my hands around it. I had a Strong's Concordance in the days before you could search online and pull up words in the Bible I remember thinking, I'm going to prove these turkeys wrong. And so I got out my Strong's Concordance, and I look up the word chose and choose and choice, because I was certain there would be all these verses about we chose him, you choose him. And there are some. Choose this day whom you will serve. And there were a lot more about God choosing us. Yikes. And eventually my yikes turned to Yes. I don't get it. I don't know why. I certainly don't know why me. But once it's true, it can be great comfort. That's why Paul says, we know he's chosen you. How did he know? Well, he didn't know when he arrived in Thessalonica that day and began preaching. You don't know. And that's why you preach. Because you don't know. But then... When some come to believe and truly follow Jesus, you know. Paul can know in part because of verse 3, their work of faith, their labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. 
and also because of verse 5, which here's our fourth heading, their powerful conversion. Their powerful conversion. He says in verse 5, we know because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's conversion. It's the experience of becoming a Christian. It's beginning to believe in Jesus for salvation and beginning to walk with him. Now, to clarify, we should acknowledge that even though it's not in this passage, there is the possibility of someone looking like they came to Jesus, saying that they came to Jesus, and in the end it proves to not be the real thing. Of the four soils that Jesus talked about in that one parable, two are of that category. They looked promising at first. But persecution comes, they give up. They're drawn away by love for riches, they give up. That can happen. For some, they, they, they profess Christ. They don't possess Christ. And so for some, it's a spiritually dangerous thing to think that they're Christians simply because they've had some conversion experience. Raising a hand at a a rally, maybe walking an aisle, signing a card, writing a date down in their Bible, having a tearful moment, feeling bad about themselves and looking to Jesus. So they thought if that is the sole basis for their assurance, that's dangerous ground. But Paul here doesn't even bring up that possibility. He's celebratory about their conversion experience. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't bypass it. He doesn't poo-poo it. He cites it as encouragement. And so we could go back to that thing of election and God's choice relating it to this conversion experience along these lines. We could say that on the one hand, there's Acts 17, and these are events that people could see and observe. Paul preached. Paul pleaded People heard. They were persuaded, it says. They believed. They were saved. They started identifying with Paul and his kind. They didn't believe because they were coerced by God that day. It wasn't that a tractor beam started pulling them in and they were kicking against it all the way in. No, they as far as they were concerned, what Paul said made sense. They believed it. They embraced it. But from another angle, here we have 1 Thessalonians 1. There is something going on behind the scenes. God not only chose them long ago, but verse 5, the word came. And it wasn't a bare word. It wasn't just a word. It wasn't merely the words of a man. The word of God came to them in power, in the Holy Spirit, and it brought full conviction. This is like what is said in Acts 16 about Lydia. She, her heart was opened by the Lord. The Lord opened her heart to receive the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. That's what it takes to be saved. If you haven't believed believe. If you have believed, 
All credit and glory goes to God. Now that won't look the same for everyone. The conversion experience of a Lydia, or basically everyone in the Thessalonian church who turned from idols to the living God, who had a, an experience, a day in which they gave up the idols and they turned to Christ and confessed him. That looks a little bit differently for a kid who grows up in a Christian home, like my kids did. They grew up hearing the gospel from day one. I, I don't know when they came to believe it for themselves. I don't know when they came to believe it savingly. I think most of my kids would say, I'm not sure exactly when that changed. I'm not exactly sure when it was my own. But regardless of the story, the theology, the ingredients is the same for every Christian. For kids who grow up in Christian homes, for Lydia, for idolatrous Thessalonians, God has chosen them. God has drawn them in. They have freely believed they were persuaded. They came to Jesus. They embraced him. They were saved. And now that faith is working itself out in faith and love and hope. Is that true of you? If not, do what the Thessalonian Christians did. Be persuaded and believe. Paul's message to them was just this simple. It was necessary for Jesus, the Christ, to die and be raised for the forgiveness of sins. You come to believe that? Well, all credit goes to him. And we will spend the rest of our lives and all of eternity, alter, eternity marveling at that, giving praise to him for it, thanking him, encouraging each other with it. So let us be thankful let us remember. Let's recall that we don't outgrow the gospel. That the gospel is of first importance to Christians as well as non-Christians. We keep coming back to it. We keep standing in awe of it. Not just one specific part of the story, like the cross or the resurrection, though that's essential. But, but here, Paul holds up different assets, different facets of the gospel and the implications of it. Like God's love for us, his election of us, he marvels at it, the outworkings of it. We must continue to remember what the Lord has done and not outgrow the simplicity and truth of the gospel.